Hi, my name is Chip, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Through God's grace, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and sponsorship, I've been sober since February the 4th of 1992. Yeah. Thank you. Um, it's a real honor and privilege to get to do this. Uh, I'd like to thank Brian for having me come down and, uh, you know, and, uh, and the committee for putting this thing on because I know what kind of work goes into these things. I've been involved. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was at the very first one of these, and I was at the last one, <laughs> as a matter of fact, <laughs> a couple years ago. And a few of them in between, and I always enjoyed this conference. It's a great time. and I really appreciated uh Kim and Mike's talks last night kick this thing off. Man, it felt be good, really good to be in a meeting, in a conference with all the people. And uh, I missed that. You know, I'm the kind of guy I go to the conferences every chance I get. One's down here, one's up in Columbus, and been to Founders Day every year since I've been sober. Been to five internationals and all that. Stuff. I missed that stuff, and uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm not your Zoom kind of AA guy, trust me. <laughs> I like interaction, you know, face-to-face stuff. And, uh, it's just good to be here. And uh, I'll reiterate what Mike said last night about the tapers. Uh, you know, let's support these guys because they're, they're uh, keeping our history, you know. And uh, Gene and I had to find a, some CDs for this or that, and I was going through all my old CDs, and I run across some stuff that, man, I'm glad I still got it, you know, some of the old timers, Clancy, and, you know, and guys that just aren't here, Wino Joe, God, what a guy, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it's real important that we support them, keep them coming back, I, I, uh, I'm nervous, I don't normally get it's probably this damn jacket. I never wear one. <laughs> I'm not sure, but uh, anyway, I I uh, I love AA, and uh, you know I uh, I I'll get some of the incidentals out of the way. I I uh, have a couple home groups. Uh, one's a High Pacific group meets every Friday night at 1325 South Ohio in Columbus, Ohio, and. Uh, you know, and that's a that's a good meeting. It's a big meeting, and uh, and we get a lot of newcomers in there. You know, I like to stay in the trenches, and uh, this is in the south end of Columbus. <clears throat> and you know, we have two ten minute speakers in the break, and then we have a twenty minute speaker gets up there and kind of gets everybody involved, a little bit of everything for everyone. And uh, I enjoy that meeting, but my main meeting is the infamous dog without a roof group <laughs> a couple of our guys there a few you've been down there <laughs> uh we meet at the same place 1325 south ohio in columbus and uh every wednesday night at 8 30 and uh we've had a couple guys from down here come up and speak for us and uh you know and then and every now and then we get a spattering of you guys that show up from down this way and uh Man, I love that group. We focus on the newcomer, and uh, you know we let we let the newcomers get up and talk for the first half of the meeting. You know, and uh, you know sometimes those newcomers like to talk a little longer, and we like to listen. And uh, <laughs> just saying, <laughs> you know, so they got three minutes, and I got the timer, and <laughs> yeah, I got the power. <laughs> I'm the gong man. <laughs> Damn me. <laughs> anyway, uh, I love that meeting. Uh, we uh, we uh, cook hot dogs, free hot dogs, free soda. We go to any links to get them drunks in there, and boy, do we get them in there. And uh, it's a big meeting as well. And uh, I love that meeting. Uh, I love that meeting. And and you know, I uh, I I have a I have two sponsors. Uh, you get the idea. One ain't enough of anything still for me. And uh, I got one guy, He's he got sober down here, Bill Kay. He spoke here a couple years ago, the last one you had. And uh, and uh, he got sober down here. And 
it's that's how I ended up down here at a lot of stuff and uh and he's shown me by example how to live this program. I've wa- watched him walk through some serious stuff, and he showed me how to do that with dignity and, and sobriety. And uh, I, I watch him very closely. I see him on a regular basis and talk to him pretty regularly. And uh, you know, and then I got a guy who lives out on the West Coast. I call every Tuesday. I don't like this guy at all. Uh, I've been doing that. I've been doing that since I was uh, probably two years sober, and uh, his name's Keith D., and uh, he's a no-nonsense sponsor. I, he, he, I'm ready to hang up on him every week, so he's doing his job. <laughs> he always makes me look at me no matter what's going on, and, you know, and he shoots from the hip, and, uh, and that's the kind of guy I need in my life. You know, he, he don't pull no punches, and uh, he tells me like it really is whether I want to hear it or not usually, and, uh, and and I'm real grateful to those two men for my sobriety. Okay, that's some of the stuff out of the way. I uh, I drank. Boy, did I drink. Uh, you know, in the big book it tells us resentment is our number one offender, and, uh, and I believe that truly today because my first drink was out of big resentment I hold I held towards my parents see uh they moved me from the big city of Columbus Ohio down to this little hick town in southeastern Ohio called Nelsonville if you've never been there don't bother uh, you know when I was 14 I was a hip slick city dude you know I had it going on and they moved me down there in Nelsonville where the people even talked funny and uh now, by golly, I was going to show them, and that's what I did. And I picked up a drink and uh, to show them our resentment. And uh drink took a drink, and the drink took the man, uh, for real. I, uh, I, uh, I can tell you from the first time I drank enough alcohol, feel the effects produced by it, I fell in love with that feeling, and I chased it for the next 25 years. And it took me a whole lot of places I wasn't planning on going, for sure. And, uh, you know, I uh, I was a jock through high school, played all the sports. You know, I, I really didn't like school, but, you know, I liked playing sports. And uh, there was a group of us that uh, hung out together. And uh, we managed to get drunk every week and, you know, once a week. And that don't make me an alcoholic because there's about eight or nine of us that run around together and did that. I'm the only alcoholic that I know of. But, uh, you know, that don't make me an alcoholic. But I think, because it says in the big book, this disease centers in our mind rather than in our body. And uh, I believe that today, you know, because the fact that I drank every weekend or got drunk every weekend don't make me an alcoholic. But the thinking behind it did, I truly believe, you know, because every weekend, all week, it consumed my every thought. Where was going to get it? How much was going to get it? Who's going to get it for us? Where was going to drink it? What was going to tell our parents? The plan was on all week until I got drunk again. Whether it's Friday night after the football game, Saturday or Sunday sometimes. And uh, but I uh, I managed to get drunk every week. And uh, and you know, series of events took place in a real short period of time, changed the whole course of my life. I took the college prep courses and all that stuff when I was sixteen. Uh, I uh, I held a state office. Uh, I was uh, state vice chairman of uh, this political party and a teenage party, and uh, they elected me too. And uh, and uh, one guy had uh, from Columbus North. I had from Columbus South, and uh, went around and organized groups, teenagers to, and spoke a lot, of, did a lot of stuff, and uh, got a scholarship from that. You know, as I followed a political science uh, you know, agenda, I guess, you know, because you see they were, they were, uh, they saw what they had, you know, because you know what it takes to be a politician. They wanted, they was grooming me for politics and uh, you know what it takes to be a politician. You got to be a liar, cheat, and a thief and they saw that in me <laughs> intuitively early on. <laughs> so they was grooming me for politics and, uh, Anyway, uh, I had that going on for me, and then, uh, you know, the summer going into my senior year, 
uh, I, I excelled at a couple of those sports, and uh, I interviewed at three colleges, and I picked the one I was going to go to, and and they offered me the best deal, and, uh, and I was going off to college. And uh, we were having the two-a-day summer practices this time of year, that year, and, uh, you know, and uh, I went to my second practice. My girlfriend had been real sick with a cold. We thought she had pneumonia, and uh, she went to the doctor. And I came home from practice, and I called her up. I said, hey, what did the doctor say about your cold? She said, he said, I'm pregnant. I said, damn, how'd that happen? You just had a cold. <laughs> just had a cold when I went to practice you know I remember I remember dropping that phone man just kind of seeing my whole world go down the tubes for real because back then you had to get married you know that's just the way it was this is an unwritten rule in that town anyway I was about doing the right thing I wanted to marry this young lady but my parents wouldn't have nothing to do with that and finally I talked my dad into signing for me to marry this young lady and I did that uh, you know about two weeks after that happened <coughs> as a direct result of some of my horseplay alcohol wasn't involved this time uh, my best friend lost his life and uh, I blame myself for that that should have been me and the what ifs and what fours and at any rate uh, you know he got injured and died a week later and the day he died uh, a group of us got together and went up to this old graveyard where we used to drink and party and we had kind of a wake for him I remember taking a case of long neck strows up there with me that night with the intention of drinking every one of them and I would have but somebody bummed one off of me they wouldn't get no more uh, and I drank those beers down as hard and as fast as I could you know 23 of them and I couldn't get out of the pain of his passing I remember like it was yesterday you know, uh, I, you know that should have been me and all that crap. And I, uh, you know, I was just beside myself. And I was watching guys and girls hugging and grieving and crying over his death. And I wanted to do that with everything in me. He was my best friend, and I couldn't do it. I could not do it. Wanted to, and I couldn't. You know, because I hadn't cried since I was in second grade. I don't know why. That's just—it's not important, but that's just the way it was. And <clears throat> anyway. I was in a dilemma, put it mildly. You know, for the first time in my life, alcohol wasn't working for me. It worked for everything, you know. You know, it was my go-to for anything, good, bad, or indifferent, and it just wasn't working. And uh, a couple of buddies of mine come back from that Vietnam skirmish or whatever they called it over there, and uh, these guys I looked up to, they're a year or two older than me, and they come back from that war with some different opinions about some stuff. And... Uh, and they seen I was in a dilemma. I'm, I know they were well intentioned what they said and did. They, you know, said, hey, Chip, here, try a couple of these. It'll help. And uh, what they did is they introduced me to the wonderful world of drugs. I don't go into a whole lot of that. I don't tell you I did them all every way you could. The ones I liked, I did a whole bunch of. I like to say I did them alcoholically. Alcohol is always present, you know. And uh, Well, I didn't do them every way you could. Uh, a couple people up here since I've been sober talked about doing suppositories I missed those but <laughs> hell if you'd have had them we'd have done them but I'd done you first baby you know what I'm saying I, I wasn't picky about what we were doing just so there's more <laughs> truth <laughs> anyway stuff I liked in the beginning were the diet pills and that crystal meth you know stuff allowed me to drink the way i wanted to drink with no more blackouts i thought i found the magic dust and needless to say i graduated from high school and and uh and and, and that marriage is falling apart and uh and <clears throat> i heard she was seeing some other guy and i guess i was in an alcoholic blackout don't remember any of it. they said i beat this guy to death and i don't remember that but uh that's what they told me and uh and a buddy of mine was getting ready to go to California to see his brother. And uh, he said, hey, man, you want to ride out with me? I said, oh, yeah. So I grabbed a pair of cutoffs and some flip-flops, and off to California I went. <laughs> you know, and, and we call those geographic cures here in AA. <laughs> Just for your information, uh, Stable Hot calls that interstate flight to avoid prosecution. <laughs> Just in case she's wondering. <laughs> You know, and I honestly believe once I got away from that town, those people and that stuff, I'd be okay. And that wasn't a bad plan. And I got out there and everything was good for a while. It was good for a while. And uh, <clears throat> But what I can tell you about that is everywhere I went, there they were. 
and uh, and uh, faces changed, but the characters all remained the same. Now I hooked up the same damn people everywhere I went, you know. And uh, I don't know if they found me or I found them, but they we always hooked up. And uh, they had some stuff out there we didn't have in Nelsonville yet, and uh, I liked real well. And uh, I got real strung out on that stuff. Came back to Ohio, hired a lawyer over that divorce, and uh, and that guy did not die, and over that whole mess. And I went back out there for a while, and uh, when I came back the second time, I was dying. I weighed 128 pounds. I was bleeding out of every orifice. I'd been hospitalized out there twice, and I was dying. I went to my family physician. He put me in the hospital and run some tests, and he said, my God, Chip, he said, he said, you're 20 years old on the outside. You got the insides of a 65-year-old man. He said, I don't even give you six months to live. And uh, he said, if you don't stop doing the stuff you're doing, he told me I had to cut all that stuff out and put me on a special diet and everything. I did everything he told me to do, you know, except for quit smoking cigarettes. Hell, he told me I was going to die. I'm smoking twice as many cigarettes. But I cut everything else out. And, uh, and uh, you know, I followed his orders to a T. For two weeks. <laughs> it's that two-week thing, man. I, you know, you start feeling better, start thinking. <laughs> you know, I hooked up with this young lady when I first got back into town. She put me up in her attic bedroom and nursed me back to, well, she let me kick is what she did. And, you know, and, and we got to talking. We decided the drugs was a problem. And, uh, you know, I could go ahead and drink. It's socially accepted and legal. And, you know. That lady saved my life is what she did. And uh, and uh, I became a weekend warrior at that point in my life. And what that amounted to for me at that time was we'd go out on Friday or Saturday night, you know. I'd get lip-dragging, wall-sliding, knee-walking drunk, no problems, no consequences. She'd drive, hey, this is working. Now that went on for a couple of years. And then this disease, it always progresses. It always gets worse. It never gets better. And after a while, it was Friday and Saturday night. And, uh, you know, and then, uh, you know, the Browns started playing on Sunday. And uh, I don't know if any of you are Browns fans down this way, but uh, I still feel like I need a beer when I watch them damn guys. <laughs> Truth. So I'm drinking Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Took up bowling on Wednesday night. Didn't particularly like to bowl, but I liked to drink. And, uh, Thursday night, right around the corner from my house, I could walk to this bar. Every Thursday night, all you could drink for three bucks. <laughs> Had to go. Had to go. <laughs> About four or five years into this, you know, my life's going down the tubes just drinking. Just drinking. And, uh, you know, she's on me getting ready to leave. The job's on me. If I'm late one more time or absent one more time, I'm getting fired. And me and a buddy of mine, by this time I moved to Lancaster, Ohio, Buddy of mine and I are sitting there in a modern bar there in Lancaster. This guy I took my first drink with, you know, and uh, we've been friends. He's like my little brother, and uh, and uh, we're sitting there, sitting there, and I'm crying in my beer, saying, "Yeah, she's leaving." And, da, da, da. and he gets up in my face and calls me of all things. He said, "Chip, I think you're an alcoholic." <laughs> I said, "Whoa, dude, you can't call me one of them. You slid on them effort and sob, but you don't call me one of them." So we're outside getting ready to throw hands. I don't know if I had a mini blackout or gray out or what, but the next thing I remember, I'm shaking his hand, making him better. I'm going to quit drinking for a year. And I'm thinking while I'm doing it, going, man, maybe you ought to quit making bets like this, you know, because alcohol is my solution, you know. And anyway, uh, next day I quit, you know. And but, because my ego insists, if I say I'm doing it, by God, I'm doing it. And that's worked in about every aspect of my life but this disease. And uh, 11 and a half months into that deal, I haven't drank. And, uh, you know, I, when I can tell you about the 11 and a half months, it's <laughs> the most insane time I can remember in my life. Because when I'm not drinking, I'm full of this insane energy. i got to be doing something all the time. <coughs> and I'm... Uh, you know, I'm running around like a chicken with his head cut off. I'm working two jobs. I'm coaching Little League Baseball, umpiring women's softball. Don't suggest any of you guys doing that on dry drunk, for real. <laughs> Most of them women don't like men to begin with, and uh, they all have bats. One bad call will get your ass kicked. I can promise you that. <laughs> That's embarrassing as hell. <laughs> it, 
That was embarrassing. You know. <laughs> I'm restoring a 53 Ford in my driveway. I joined the Lions Club there in Lancaster, you know, just staying busy and, you know, and uh, next one day I'm cleaning out a closet, just staying busy around the house, you know, and, uh, and I run across this manila envelope and I open it up and it's full of these little mini white crosses, these little speeders I brought back from California like five years prior and done that stuff and all that time. And I remember looking down and scooping a handful of them and they're all crushed up and powdery and yellowed and I thought, they're probably no good. I'm going to do a little handful of them here, see if I get a tingle, right? <laughs> so I threw them back. Chase down some orange juice, staying healthy, you know. And right, guess what? They wasn't stale. <laughs> they were not stale. Man, now I'm really bouncing off the walls. You know, got five projects going on, not getting none of them done, and uh, zipping around there. And next thing you know, I'm out there putting up his CB antenna. I don't know why I never owned a CB, but it seemed like I had one. Might as well put it up, right? And, I'm putting this damn thing up, and the wind caught it and blew it into high-tension wires. I got three jolts of 7,200 volts. Killed me deader than a doornail. Later from next door was a nurse. She came over, and she tried to revive me. She told my wife, she said, I'm sorry, honey, he's gone. And uh, I guess a couple minutes later, I jumped up and said, Now I'm really wired. (laughs) Paramedics are chasing me around the yard, but I'm staying ahead of them, you know. I'm telling them I'm fine, I'm fine. I just blew the ends of my toes off. I'm feeling something. My teeth, my hair's falling out a little bit, but I'm okay. You know, oh, dude, we got to check you out. Come find out everywhere I had metal touching, I got burnt, you know. And all I had on was a pair of cutoffs. Kind of wish I took time to put the old underwear on that morning because that zipper got really, really hot. For real. <laughs> oh, yeah. Found out I had a crescent wrench in this pocket, pair of pliers in this pocket. They said I ground out against that old trailer, and all that electricity went right out my ass. <laughs> That's what they told me. <laughs> Today I got crescent wrench on this cheek, pair of pliers on this cheek, pretty burning my hind end. You guys know I got a lot of mileage out of that in the bars. <laughs> Bet me a beer they ain't on there. I, I literally showed my ass over the state of Ohio winning beers with that for years. Years. <laughs> hey, I didn't. I didn't leave you ladies out either. I said, "Hey, baby, I got all the tools to fix you. Let me sell you <laughs> sick cookie. I'm telling you, I, any links. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, something happened in that five or six minutes. They said I was dead. I don't go into great detail and tell you. I experienced a peace and a calm. I never before experienced in my life. And the bottom line is I lost all fear of death. That's a bad deal for an alcoholic of my type. It's a bad, bad deal. I no longer cared about my life, so I sure as heck didn't care about yours. I rolled over everybody in my path after that. And uh, I'm not proud of that. It's just the way it was. Nothing mattered. Those aren't strong enough words to describe the feeling I have within. Nothing mattered. It got real crazy after that, and uh, uh, I'm going to condense this down. I'm going to share with you some of the consequences I was willing to pay out there in order to stay out there and doing the stuff I was doing. This is by no means a prerequisite to come to Alcoholics Anonymous and staying here. If you're here, for God's sake, stay here. It only gets better. This is just my story. If you're, you know, if you've been to the places I've been and done the stuff I've been, you need to be here just like I do because, you know, that's the only place I've found for people like me. And uh, anyway, uh, first 10 years I drank were jail-free. Last 15 years I drank, I went to jail 35 times. That ain't no record. It's just my story, you know. And uh, I uh, had nine OMBIs in my name and nine or ten in yours. <laughs> I blamed you for that. If you left your stuff laying around, I had a photographic memory for stuff like that. If I knew your social security number and birth date, I became you. <laughs> you know, I put kind of best friend I was, I put two OMBIs on my best friend's driving record. That was a tough amends. He punched me. <laughs> one in Virginia, one in Ohio. And, uh, you know, that's just the kind of stuff I did. Um, 
anyway, I, I'm a multiple marrier. I've been married six times, divorced five. I had six kids scattered all over the state of Ohio. And I was an absentee father. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not proud of that by any means. And, uh, you know, it, that was the hardest thing I had to deal with when I was out there drinking. Because I love my kids as much as I was capable of loving anything. And it was the hardest thing I had to deal with when I got here to you. And, uh, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, you know, I, uh, I owed $93,000 in back child support when I got here. My sponsor said, you always have to share that from the podium. And cause I'm going over my, I'm about two and a half, three months sober. I'm going over my fourth step with my sponsor and I'm on that fear list. And I said, man, I'm still driving in my rear view mirror. Got my license back and everything, but I'm still driving in a rear view mirror. I owe all this money in child, child support. And, uh, and I told him how much, and he said, Chip, you got to pay every bit of that money back, and you got to keep your current support current. I said, Bill, what an order. I can't go through with it. <laughs> I said, I can't even get electric on in my name. You want me to pay that, that back? He said, you're going to get a money order every Friday when you get off work. You're going to bring it to the Friday night meeting with an envelope and a stamp on it, and uh, we're going to go right out there and mail it every Friday toward that arrearage. You understand. I said, yes, sir. He said, because if you don't, you're not going to stay sober. And uh, I said, okay, because when I got here, white flag was waving. I, I was willing to go anything, so I started doing that. You know, this ain't a success story. It's just my story. Thirteen years sober, I wrote that last check. I now own my kids. <laughs> I didn't get a deed or a title or nothing burned, but by God, they're mine, bought and paid for <laughs> Let me tell you, I had no overwhelming good feeling about sending that check every week. But what I can tell you about that is this. You know, those kids, Child Enforcement Bureau would catch up for me from time to time and start zapping that check from my own. They'd lift the warrants and allow me to see my kids. And, you know, sometimes it was a year and a half. One time it was two years that I didn't even see my kids because I was on a roll. And, uh, and, I call them up Monday and say, I'm coming to get you guys. We're going to go to Allen Creek. We're going to go camping and swimming and make all these plans. And I look forward to it all week. All week I look forward to it. And uh, Friday roll around, I get that paycheck, go down, pay my bar tab, cash my check at the bar, and tell the barmaid, say, Dale, just give me one. I get to get my kids. Oh, that's great, Chip. It's on me, you know. And I'd sit there and get my half that beer down and, in come Johnny B's. Oh, you're getting your kids tonight? Let me get your beer. And uh, a couple minutes later, here come George. Oh, you're getting your kids tonight? Let me get your beer. So I buy around, you know, and next thing you know, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. I didn't know it was that first one. I had no clue about this disease then, and, uh, you know. And one more time, I've disappointed them babies. And God, when I, I can't even describe the words how much I'd hate myself for that I'd hate myself for that. One of you guys would look at me wrong or say the wrong thing, and we'd be rolling around out in the alley. Because I'd gladly trade that emotional pain for physical pain any day of the week. That's just the way I coped. George knows. <laughs> he, he got to see a good bit of it. And, uh, anyway, that's just the way I coped. I was a very violent, volatile person. Because I hated me, so I hated everybody. And uh, Anyway... Those kids seen that check come up in like clockwork every Monday or Tuesday on that arrearage. Uh, that opened the door about that far from me out of the relationship I got with all my kids today because they seen something was different about their dad. You know, something was different. By my actions, they saw something was different. One of those empty promises they'd heard so many times before. And, uh, and I've got a wonderful relationship. Those kids, I'll get to that too in a minute. Um, anyway, you got the idea. I was a worthless piece of human wreckage. I took advantage of everybody that I could. And the ones I took advantage of the most were the people who loved me. You know, my parents, my sisters, my kids, my significant others. I mean, I used them and abused them beyond anything they deserve for sure. And uh, that was a hard piece to put together when I got here too. Um, Anyway, I got here to do some rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1981. And, uh, you know, they sentenced me to two AA meetings a week, 
plus one at the health department for six months. Man, I had big resentment about that. But, you know, 1981, I had it all again for the third time in my life. I had a wife, two beautiful children, a little boy and a little girl together. We had a dog and a cat, beautiful home, white pick fence around it, two nice vehicles in the driveway. And, you know, I thought, you know, I... In order to hang on to this stuff this time, I got to do something about my problem because I realized I had a problem in 81. And uh, so I came in there, I listened, I listened very carefully. What I heard was the 12 steps of spirituality of fixing the drink problem. I got that part. But no one so much as addressed smoking pot at the meetings I went to, let alone (laughs) sticking a needle in their arm. I thought, man, this must just be for pure alcoholics. And, you know. I missed the boat. I didn't think I'd find recovery here. I didn't know it was one big ball of wax called alcoholism. I treated my alcoholism with alcohol, drugs, women, things. Anything I could put in me or around me to make me feel better about me is how I treated this disease of alcoholism. Until I got that concept, this this really didn't make sense to me. And uh, But I got it. <laughs> anyway, uh, so... What I did here was God was the answer. And so I started going to church every every Wednesday and twice on Sunday. And what I can tell you about that experience for me is this. Me going in there and taking up a space in a pew, trying to stay awake three times a week, listening to a guy give a sermon, ain't going to keep a guy like me sober very long. At least it didn't me. No more of me coming in here, taking up a seat in here, and not doing damn things going to keep me sober very long actions be taken they're outlined in that big book of alcoholics anonymous that if you're not taking those actions chances are you probably ain't gonna stay very long at least that was true for me and uh and needless to say uh i ended up loaded ended up in louisiana working offshore drilling rigs uh making three times more money than i ever made before and and i like to say Started doing all the right stuff with that money, but I wasn't. You know, it was life in the fast lane, you know. And instead of drinking bar whiskey, I was drinking wild turkey, my drink of choice. Instead of buying eight balls, I was buying OZs. I probably deeper into this disease, and, you know, it always gets worse. And uh, came back to Columbus, Ohio for a two-week vacation before we were supposed to go to Australia and drill. And, uh, and, you know, while I was out there working offshore, sometimes we'd be out there for 30 days. We didn't drink because maritime laws put you in prison for drinking when you're offshore like that, working. And uh, so we didn't drink. We smoked a bunch of pot, though. And, and you know, I probably shouldn't smoke pot and think either. Uh, but what I, you know, I probably heard in 81, we quit growing emotionally once we started abusing alcohol drugs. I probably heard that in 81. But while I was working offshore there, I realized I hadn't grown up. I had not grown up, you know, and my keen alcoholic th- thinking kicked in behind that. And uh, so we haven't grown up. You need a woman in your life. What are you going to do, dummy? Well, you find a young one to grow up with you, right? It made sense to me then. Hell, it makes sense to me now. You meet my wife. And uh, I met this 19-year-old girl, drank party like I did. She got pregnant like all the other ones did, and we got married. And uh, long story short on that, five, two kids and five years later, she outgrew me. <laughs> There I was stuck with me again, and I started crossing lines. I swore I'd never cross. I was I was brought up with good morals and ethics and values, and uh, and I always felt any man beat a woman or a child's less than a man. And I feel very strongly about that today. And in that fourth marriage, I put my hands on that woman. I can't even tell you shame, guilt, and remorse I felt over that, you know, and uh, it scared me. Because, uh, you know, there's only one thing lower on this earth than that. And I thought, my God, am I going to turn into one of those next? Is that what's next? And there was some other stuff going on that was really out of hand. And uh, and I was scared. And I run my butt to Alcoholics Anonymous in 89 because I was scared. And I came in here. I did everything you all told me to do. Don't get a sponsor. Get a home group. Go to meetings every day. Read that big book every day. Pray every day and work these steps. And I started doing that stuff, and my life got better by leaps and bounds beyond anything I ever could have imagined, you know. And, uh, I mean, it was it was amazing just how good it was. And uh, But what I can tell you about that also is I skimped on some of that worst stuff in stock in that fourth and fifth step, you know. 
against my sponsor's advice. I did it with one of my best friends. He'd been running a buddy of mine for about 20 years by then. And, uh, uh, you know, he's sitting there drinking a 12-pack. And I'm reading this stuff. And he's in on a bunch of them with me, you know. And I'm reading this stuff. And he said, yeah, I remember that. Do you remember this? I said, no, George, forgot all about that. Better write that down, you know. And I thought I'm moving right along with recovery here. And, uh, you know, and <laughs> I didn't share with him. You know, I got to set some of that 666 stuff, and I cared more about what he thought about me than I did my recovery. And I didn't share it. And, uh, you know, what I can tell you about that is, you know, I was six and a half, seven years sober. He called me up. He said, he said, Chip, I need some help. I said, well, go to detox and, and call D- Mary Haven and see if you can get in there. And, uh, and he said, well, they, he called me back and said, well, I can't get in there till Monday. This is a Friday. I said, well, hell, just drink like it's your last drink, you know, your last drunk. <laughs> he said, I can do that <laughs> till Monday. So, Anyway, he went in there and got sober, and he eventually asked me to sponsor him. And, uh, you know, and uh, and so when he got to his fourth and fifth step, I, I, said, I said, if you don't feel comfortable, tell me everything, George. Don't do what I did and, uh, you know, go, go share your fifth step with somebody else. He said, oh, no, I'll tell you everything. And he did. What I can tell you about that is this. Had I known in 89 about his goat, I told him about my sheep in hell. I'd have a different sobriety date. <laughs> Come on, it ain't that bad. <laughs> Just get rid of it. That's all matter. Dump that stuff. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Consequently, you know, I, I, uh, I ended up getting invited to a 4th of July party down my hometown in Nelsonville. I hadn't seen none of them guys for quite a while. I'd been sober for a while. And, uh, anyway, you know, I was always beating myself over the head with that big book, looking for the loophole, you know, and it says right in that big book, we can go any place we want to, as long as we're spiritually fit, even to whoopee parties. <laughs> Here's a piece of advice for me. Don't go on your own opinion whether you're spiritually fit or not. You might check with your sponsor or spiritual advisor or somebody. <laughs> anyway, I ended up I ended up going down this party. Nobody's going to be able to make me drink, you know. And, and, and I met that with everything in me. But they just passed around some of that good old Meigs County skunk bud joints. And I'm passing it by going, you know, I ain't doing this either. And, and then it's going around about the third time and I, I got to t- thinking to myself, you know, I've never had a problem with pot. <laughs> you know, and he went on around, and, you know, it ain't going to make me drink like my sponsor said. So I hit that joint, you know, and come back around, and I hit her again real good, and I got so damn high, I had to go sit in the car the rest of the night, spooked <laughs> out of my mind. So I've been sober for a while. You know, you know, I don't know about you guys, but if you don't enjoy the buzz, it don't count, right? <laughs> Right. <laughs> I went to my regular regular Monday Monday night meeting up there in Columbus and Harbor Lights and I went in there and sat down and it's full of these old timers. I sit down and they were all staring at me. I thought, damn, how could they know? I'm looking around for who narked on me, you know. So I thought it's just this meeting, so I went on the other side of town to the post office group in Grandview and sit down in there and they was all staring at me too. I thought, damn, how could they know? Well I can tell you about this is this. Come meetings with Alcoholics Anonymous and smoking pot, we know. <laughs> Keep coming back. I finally did. Anyway, a week to the day later after I picked up that joint, I'm sitting in a bar with an empty shot glass in front of me, half past the room, and now you done done it, dummy, you might as well go for broke. And that's what I did. I plumbed depths beyond my wildest imagination. You know, I heard old fools when I was here in 89 up here saying, I became unemployable, I became homeless, started crapping my pants and peeing the bed. And I thought, old fools like you, that's okay for you, but it'll never happen to me. Well, I can tell you about that is this. It ain't real funny when it starts happening. <laughs> I wasn't peeing the bed because I was living behind Lindy's bar in a 73 Pinto with my 8-pound black lab in December of 89. 
you know, I wasn't pissing the bed, but I think I left my window down a couple nights. And uh, anyway, it's the coldest December on record. Had not been for that old dog a couple nights, I'd probably froze it to death. And uh, I was getting drunk three times a day. Uh, everything was gone. Uh, you know, and I was perfectly content to ride out the rest of my days that way because I'd alienated everybody. My parents wanted nothing to do with me, my sisters, my kids. They were all done. They wanted nothing to do with that drunk chip. They got to see the sober chip, and they didn't want nothing to do with that one no more. And they didn't have nothing to do with me. Anyway, uh, God sent me an angel, I believe. Don't remember meeting her. I was in a blackout the way I like to stay by that time. But she came back three days later looking for me. Kind of tells you how sick she must have been. And... Uh, she must have got there early because I was sober. And I got talked to her, found out she had her own house, brand new car and driver's license, something I hadn't had in years. She had a job with a law firm she'd had for 12 years. I was always need a lawyer. And then I found out she had a big bank account. I said, well, baby, where have you been all my life? And I reeled her right in. One no time I'm sitting in that little gingerbread house of hers with my feet up on the coffee table, living the good life. You know, one no time behind that. I stuck a needle in that lady's arm for the first time to get to that bank account. Selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, yeah, that was me. And I drug her right down that gutter with me. And what I did was I created a monster. I really did. Anyway, it got real ugly after that. I ended up putting my hands on her. And I went to jail right where I should have went. Uh, this time, I swore to God, me and God is the only deal. I said, I'll never drink again. And I got out of jail, and her and I worked things out. And, you know, eight months into that, I didn't come back to AA, though. <clears throat> I was just white-knuckled, freaking not drinking. And uh, it was her birthday, and she insisted I'd toast her birthday with this Maui stuff. looked like fruit punch. And I thought, well, that ain't going to do nothing to me. That fruit juice, I'm a turkey drinker. And uh, I toasted that, threw that back, and it wasn't five minutes later that phenomenon of craving kicked right in behind it. And I'm making a beeline to the liquor store, get a bottle of turkey, and a beeline to the dope man. For the next 15 days, I stayed drunk day and night. Don't think I blinked for 15 days either. And, uh, you know, and uh, had a bad accident that I killed some woman. And, uh, and uh, I remember that. And I remember being at the bar and uh, walking out. My Trans Am's in flames. And the next day, I remember being on my couch, flipping and flopping like a fish out of water. Every time I went into one of those convulsions, I said, God, please help me. God, please help me. I just wanted to scream in madness to stop once and for all. I really did. I, just, I was just done. So done. You know, I was done with myself. And, 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 you know, two days into that, uh, I just couldn't, I couldn't cope. So... Uh, there was a bottle of pills sitting there, and I took the whole bottle. You know, I don't know, probably 30 or 40 pills, and I was going to take myself out. I'd never been suicidal, but I was done. I couldn't do it no more. And uh, turned out they were flexor reels. All they did was make me gumby like. <laughs> and there was about a foot of snow on the ground. I, I don't know what I went outside for, but I apparently fell down and couldn't get back up. Because next morning I looked out the front window and there's snow angels all the way around my front yard. <laughs> where I'd fallen and couldn't get back up. <laughs> next day, the next day she came in. She'd been working for my aunt who was in AA and said, cleaning houses because she'd lost that lawyer job and... Uh, and out of the blue, she said, hey, Bonnie wants to know if I want to go hear one of her gr girls give her first daily. Do you want to go? It's like the light bulb came on. AA, I forgot all about you guys in that two-plus years I've been out there. And that wasn't an easy thing to do. It's a miserable place, a head full of AA and a belly full of booze. But uh, anyway, I did you all a favor. I jumped in the shower. I've been on a 15-day roll and a three-day shakedown. And... And off to that meeting we went. And she's drunker than Cooter Brown. You can't tell if I'm walking or riding a bicycle. Well, here we are, you know. <laughs> All the way up there, I kept saying, I just don't want to see Bill. I just don't want to see my old sponsor, Bill. You know, one of many God ha ha's to follow. The only two seats in the whole damn place are right next to Bill, of course. <laughs> of course. 
As soon as our butts hit the seat, they started that serenity prayer. I never will forget that feeling rolled over me that night. That same peace and calm rolled over me that time I got electrocuted. Rolled over me that night. I know that today would be a feeling of being reborn, not of death. And I don't know if it's accepted, surrender, or what happened in that moment. Something happened. And I can honestly tell you from this podium, the compulsion to drink or do any dope has been lifted from that day to this. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that has something to do with what I do on a daily basis, stay sober, you know. And uh, and I do some set stuff. Uh, I, I'm in a routine. That routine is so important, getting in a routine. You know, every morning I get up and let my dogs out and get my coffee, let the dogs back in and go ahead and read my morning meditations. I'm up to eight books. You know, I was only doing six for quite a while, and apparently my kids decided that I need some more spirituality in my life, so they bought me two more for Father's Day this year. <laughs> so I'm up to eight. One of them's the big book, and one of them's the big, big book, of course, and then six others. But And then I get on my knees, and I, I pray, and I ask God to keep me clean and sober and do the shortened version of 3rd, 7th, 11th step prayer every day. And, uh, you know, and I write every day. I've done that since I was two months sober. I heard uh, that Bonnie, my Aunt Bonnie, uh, telling a girl, said, Honey, if, you just, if you're angry, just put it down on paper, and uh, it'll let the wind out of it. And I thought, well, maybe I ought to try that. Because I, I hated everybody. I was angry about everything when I got here. And that's just as simple as it was. And so I started writing. And it kind of worked. And the more I wrote, the more it worked. And that's been... Almost 30 years ago. I'm still writing every day. And, uh, you know, I, I go out and do an honest day's work for an honest dollar. You know, I have a small heating cooling company. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I employ only recovering alcoholics. That's been a blessing and a curse. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> I always try to keep a newcomer in the truck with me, you know. and Because uh, he... That newcomer being in there makes me a better me. I have to be an example of Alcoholics Anonymous in my everyday work. And then my wife keeps me honest at home for damn sure. And, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, what I can tell you about that is this. Uh, in the 29 and a half years I've been doing that, every single one of those guys that spent at least a year in that truck with me is still sober today. And so am I. <laughs> I ain't gonna stop it. Yeah, got a guy sitting over here. Spent two years in, and he's getting kind of iffy. <laughs> kind of worried about him. <laughs> watching him real close. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've got a life today goes beyond anything I ever could have even dreamed up. In my wildest imagination, you know, I've got a good life. And it's thanks to you taking me to a God of my understanding and uh, and, and my God. Uh, you know, when I was 15 years sober, I got diagnosed with hep C. Imagine that. <coughs> and uh, my sponsor said, draw a line down the middle of a piece of paper and, uh, and uh Put the pros and cons of taking that interferon treatment because I didn't want to take it. You had to give yourself a shot, you know, in the gut once a week, and I wanted no part of that. And they said, called it, NA calls it the suicide drug and all that, and depression and all that stuff goes behind it. And so I did that, drew a line, put the pros and cons. And, and in that writing, I come to realize at 15 years sober, I'd cleaned up all that wreckage. I paid back all that money, made all those face-to-face men's, and I was good to go. If God wanted me, I was good to go. Didn't want to go, but I was good to go, so I wasn't going to take that damn interferon. So I decided I wasn't going to do it. And uh, one week later, I get this call from this gal. I, I was single back then. get this call from this gal. He used to come by and visit, and, uh, and she said, hey, I'm pregnant, it's yours. Again, I said, what an order. I can't go through I think you're mistaken. I'm 55 years old. I think I'm probably shooting blanks, but now I know. <laughs> Two DNA tests later, uh, he is mine. Uh, so here I am, back 
paying child support again, picking him up every Wednesday, every other weekend. And that went on for a while. And when he, he just turned two, she dropped him off for a summer visit and didn't come back. And uh, we had a court date that Monday, and uh, and they gave me sole custody of that little guy. And it was the last day. I'm a single guy. I got my own place and having fun. And uh, God decided to tie a knot in my tail, and, uh, and uh, that's a good thing. The last thing in the world I thought I needed was another damn kid, and it's been the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, you know, he, uh, God opened my heart and allowed me to love something way more than I could ever love myself. And uh, I love that little guy. You know, I, <laughs> I, uh, I've got ten grandkids. Five of them are older than him, and, uh, Get it? <laughs> and they instantly nicknamed him Uncle Baby. He loves that name. <laughs> anyway, you know, he's been my sidekick. You know, I've got to experience all the stuff I missed with my other kids with this little guy. And it's brought my other kids in closer and my grandkids in closer. You know, and, uh, you know, he's 14 now. I liked him a lot better when he was two. <laughs> you know, for me, this is coming down here and doing this today is going to any length because he's got his first high school football game scrimmage today, and I'm missing it. And in nine years, he's been playing since he was five, and in nine years, I haven't missed one single scrimmage or game of his. And he's, he's going to be my Buckeye. <laughs> He's a beast. Anyway, uh, you know, I'm, you know, every day I've been a holiday since I got here. Uh, it's hard for me to talk about this, so I leave it for last. Uh, <clears throat> you know, when I got sober, my oldest son was 14, and uh, he had some serious resentments, and I worked through them. I, I got real busy working with those amends with those kids, and. Uh, and he came and lived with me, and uh, he went to meetings with me, and uh, he worked for me, and uh, you know. And uh, he said, "Dad, save me a seat. I'm going to be there one of these days." But how can you deny me my phone? You had yours, dude. And I said, "Well, you got me there, Jason." And uh, so, you know, he made me a grandpa. He gave me my first grandson and uh, grandchild, in general. You know, and. And, I, and he called me up and said, Dad, it's time. And I lived in Columbus. He lived in Portsmouth, Ohio. And I had that old Lincoln rocket. I made it from Columbus to Portsmouth in an hour and ten minutes. I'm telling you, I had that thing rocking. And I made it down there in time. And I got to be in the delivery room. The doctor handed me that little boy right out of the chute. And I handed him to my son. And... Uh, and that brought that full circle for me and that boy because he knew the day he was born, they couldn't find me because I was drunk somewhere. And uh, there was a healing that took place that in that moment. And, uh, thank you guys for that. A year later, uh, he just turned 20. It, the, I got that call and I was one to get. My 20-year-old son had been killed by a drunk driver. I was devastated. I was devastated. But you guys surrounded me and carried me through that. I had some guys that did, I think they went in the, I felt like a girl because they was going in the bathroom with me and stuff, you know. <laughs> but they stayed right by my side during that whole deal. And, uh, you know, day of his funeral, I hadn't slept for three days. And his funeral, and I was down at the funeral home at 4 o'clock in the morning cussing God and being my son's body and I were the only ones in there. I was cussing God for taking that boy's, and not me. And I was so angry. I was so full of rage. I can't even explain it because there was a guy responsible for his death that I wanted him. I wanted him bad. And, and uh, I heard a noise about from here to that door. And I looked up, and there was that kid who was responsible for my son's death. And I come up out of there, off that pew, and and I charged at that boy. I was everything I had was going to shoot him with everything I got. And right as I got to him, you, God, I don't know what happened. 
instead of hitting that boy, I wrapped my arms around him and I said, I forgive you for what you've done. Forgive yourself. Go on with your life. That wasn't me. <laughs> Trust me, that wasn't what I had in mind. And, uh, and I was able to let that go. You know, and the piece of the pie called life that I've heard all my life, you know, it's in forgiving that we are forgiven. It's in forgiving that we are forgiven. And I got that piece of that that day. And uh, anyway, uh, 12 years sober, my my dad got sick with lung cancer and died about 10 days later. And on his deathbed, he said, son, he said, I've never been so proud of you as I have been for the last 12 years. He said, you keep working with them alcoholics because I'm going to a place where I can keep an eye on you, and you better be. <laughs> I said, you got it, Dad. I waited all my life to hear my dad say he's proud of me. And I got to hear it that day, thanks to you. Um, my mom, she loved you guys. Uh, 18 years sober, she got sick, and, and uh, I knew we were good. And, uh, you know, and she made that real clear. But she said, you be sure and thank them AA people for giving me my son back, and don't you ever forget it. And she thanks you from the grave, I promise you. And, uh, and then here, uh, my second oldest daughter, her mom dropped her off on my porch when she was 12 years old. She said, I can't do nothing with her. She's just like you. And uh, so there I was with her. And for the first four or five years I had her, I was drinking. And I wasn't a very good example. But And uh, I got sober. And, and I tried to set a good example for her. And, uh, you know, and in my first year of sobriety, she got three OMBIs. <laughs> That's my girl. Back in our hometown, Nelsonville, they they nicknamed her Chip with Tits. <laughs> I tried to clean it up, but that's what they called her. <laughs> she got sober. She got sober for a year once, nine months for a year, seven or eight. She'd been in and out of the rooms and. Uh, she she got busted again. Went to penitentiary. Was got out early and for in lieu of treatment. And she called me from treatment the day she was getting out. She said, "Dad," she said, "I'm coming back to AA." She said, "I mean, I'm going to come back to stay this time." She said, uh, "I'm getting out of treatment today, and uh, she said, I'll be at a meeting Monday." We had a nice long talk. She said, "I got a job building the new prison, and da da da." And, uh, and you know, I thought, oh, great, you know, it's what I, the call I've been waiting on. And uh, the call I got Sunday was they found her non-responsive, barely breathing. Uh, somebody put that fentanyl in her crack, I guess, because she never did opiates, and uh, and she was brain dead. And I had to watch my baby die for a week, and that about killed me. About killed me. But you guys were there, you know. Right after she passed, George and I, I had a commitment in Florida. I had to go keep doing something like this. And uh, I decided to go ahead and keep that commitment. Uh, and we shot down there, rented some bikes, and rode down to Key West. I had to just get out of my head get away, run. That's what I felt like I was doing. But I was running to, not from. And, uh, and anyway... George peeled off to go visit his sister in Sarasota, and I was by myself. And, uh, you know, I'm crying. I said, God, you've got to give me something. You've got to give me something. And uh, the bluest skies I've ever seen, not a cloud in the sky that whole day. And uh, I said, you've got to give me something. I got tears streaming off of me and desperados playing on the radio. And... <laughs> And I looked up, and it was the most perfect set of angel wings I'd ever seen in a cloud, the only cloud in the whole sky. I knew my baby was okay. I don't do too good talking about that yet. Um, anyway... And then here last year, my sister Joyce, my rider, dies 65 years. 
You know, she retired from nursing. She, uh, after, and she'd been working for me running my business for my office for the last 20 years. And, uh, and she got sick. She's one of the first victims of that COVID in March of 20. And, uh, and that was a tough one too. Uh, I hadn't smoked for 10 years. I smoked at her graveside, and I'm still smoking again. Can't believe I did that. Dumbass trick, you know. This is my COVID hair. Quit cutting my hair, too. <laughs> but uh, I miss Joyce. She, she, was a, she was a dandy, but anyway. Anyway, you know, I don't tell you that for pity. I don't tell you that for any other reason. There is no excuse to drink. There's just no excuse. I mean, I, I've heard people say they broke a shoelace. That's why they went and got a bottle, you know, on their way to work. And, uh, you know, there's just no excuse. Either you're done or you're not. And I'm, I'm just so grateful that I never gave up. It'd be like slapping my parents and my kids that I've lost and the kids that are living in the face, you know, for me to go back to that hell. You know, I don't want to do that to them, let alone myself. So i got a life beyond my wildest imagination. Gene and I have been together for 15 years. And, you know, we've been married six of those. And uh, if she puts up with me, I'm going to hang in there. <laughs> I broke all records with her. I don't think I've ever been with anybody that long. And, uh, you know, you've shown me how to show up for my family. You've shown me how to love and care for others. And the best thing you've given me is you've taken this taker to being a giver, and I can't thank you enough for that, and I'm done.